0: I'm going to give you some facts, cold, hard, empirical facts and data. As you know, just a few years ago, a gunman walked into a cinema in Colorado. He carried with him multiple guns. He even had a machine gun. He had over 100 rounds of ammunition. He fired over 70 shots into the audience. 12 people were killed. Over 70 people were injured. Every year in America, they have about 30,000 gun deaths. In America, they have 16 times per capita gun deaths than what we have in Australia and the other Western developed countries. They're the cold, hard, empirical facts. You can't argue against these facts. But what are they facts of? What is the significance of these facts For 50% of Americans, it means we need more gun control. We need gun control. We need less guns. This is crazy. If this guy didn't have these guns, this would not have happened. For 50% of Americans, this means we need more guns, less gun control. (laughs) Because if everyone in that cinema had been armed, this guy would not have got 70 shots off and no one would have been killed. Now, if you think this means we need more gun control, you say, he had a machine gun. What is someone doing with a machine gun? This side say, yeah, but everyone should have a machine gun. So what you're seeing here is facts actually don't compel belief. Facts are actually not very persuasive. They can always be explained away and they can always be reinterpreted for the opposite position. (laughs) And it all comes down to What is the world view? What are the presuppositions of the people who hold these views? So for the people who support gun control, they are left-leaning democratic voters who believe we need government oversight. By and large, when humans are left to their own devices, the majority will oppress the minority groups. That's why we need government control. Businesses left to their own devices, big corporations will oppress little people. People support more guns. They're typically right-wing, conservative, and so they support libertarianism or libertarian free will and rights and freedom, meaning uh, people left to their own devices using their free will Uh, will exercise good choices and we all have rights to guns. So what I'm saying here is just stating facts won't persuade someone to change their position because they will use their worldview, they'll use their presuppositions to explain away the evidence and interpret or favour their worldview anyway. So when we tell our friends about Jesus... And we tell them about Jesus, they have typically six defeated beliefs. So number one, the problem with other religions. As we tell them about Jesus, they're saying, hey, but there are other religions. They all must be true anyway. So I love what you have, but hey, they've got their truth as well. Then there's the problem of suffering. As you tell them about Jesus, they're saying, yeah, yeah, but your God sounds so loving, but how can he be loving if he allows suffering? Number three, there's a the problem of science. As you tell your friends about Jesus, they're saying, well, okay, but hasn't science disproved Christianity? As we tell our friends about Jesus, they have a the problem with the angry God. Yeah, 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 um... Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but why couldn't God just forgive me? Why does God have to stay angry at my sins? Number five. As we tell our friends about Jesus, they're also thinking about the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. They're saying, yeah, but you're getting this from the Bible, but the Bible's full of a lot of other weird stuff which even you don't seem to believe. So, you know, I'm not sure I buy into this. And number five, as we tell our friends about Jesus, uh, they've also got the problem of what Tim Keller calls the sacredness of choice. And in the end, we should be able to pick and choose what we want to pick and choose to believe. And now, typically what we do at this stage, is after we've told our friends about Jesus and we encounter these defeated beliefs, we think just giving them more facts is going to persuade them. So when they say, hey... You know, there are other religions. We say, yeah, yeah, but the Bible says Jesus is the only way. Uh, you're just giving them more facts, which their worldview and presuppositions are just going to explain away anyway. So what I'm going to do in the next 60 minutes is take on, I think, what are the two hardest defeated beliefs. Hell and homosexuality. So hell represents this one. How can God be angry at me? And homosexuality represents really that one. And typically, if someone says, hey, I find it hard to believe in hell, we've got more facts. You know, hey, Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Hey, there are all these verses in the Bible about hell. So it must be real. Yeah, but again, that's just facts, facts, facts. We haven't addressed this side yet. Or with homosexuality, we say, hey, but all these verses in the Bible saying homosexuality is wrong. Yeah, but they're just facts, 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 facts. True, true facts, but their worldviews are just going to explain away the facts and interpret them a different way. So I'm going to spend 30 minutes now on hell and 30 minutes on homosexuality. And how we can explain our views on hell and homosexuality. So let's take on... Hell first. Why do our non-Christian friends have a problem with hell? Because they have three presuppositions, at least three presuppositions. The first problem, first presupposition is hell is judgmental and intolerant. That's what hell represents, a judgmental God and intolerant God. I watched this documentary, Triple J, The Hack Half Hour. They had a 16-year-old girl who did social media, uploads photos of herself uh, on multiple sites, talks about what she does on the weekend, the parties. And they said, does it bother you that future employers are going to go through this stuff? And based on that, they may or may not give you a job. And they had in the audience, future employers, they said, is it true you go through people's social media? They said, yeah, we do it routinely. Based on what we see, people may or may not get a job. Through the question back at the girl, does it bother you that people are going to go through what you upload on social media and based on that you may not get a job? Her answer was, if they won't give me a job based on that, they've got the problem, not me, because that is who I am. I can be no other and if that is who they are, I'd rather not work for them anyway. And in this moment, half the people in this room are now rolling your eyes. Typical, that's what's wrong with young people today. The other half are going, yeah, I hear her. I feel her. The half of us who rolled our eyes, we are modernity type thinkers. The half that said, yeah, I hear what she's saying. We are post-modernity type thinkers. Modernity, the narrative is this. Uh, There are laws, we keep the laws, we are good people, break the laws, we're bad people, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, modernity type thinking. So evangelism to modernity type thinkers was what? We always had to tell them they were bad people, you have broken laws, you just haven't known it. So that's typically how evangelism has gone for the last few decades, trying to prove to people they're bad people, they're going to hell, they just didn't know post people, that has no traction. They have broken no laws. Laws are just social constructs put upon us by oppressive figures. Uh, freedom, life is to be brave, to, be, to have the courage, to be true to yourself, to be who you really are. So if this boss won't let me be who I am. He's got the problem, not me. I'm being the brave one. I'm being the courageous one. And if I can be true to myself, that's how I get into heaven. So in her eyes, she's, um, she's getting heaven So Tim Keller says typically we have to show where you're not free, you're not true to yourself, but that's a different topic. So if the boss has the problem, not her, if God won't let him into heaven, who's got the problem? God, not her. So a post-modernity type thinker is saying, if you're telling me God's going to send me to hell, God's got a problem, not me, because that is who I am. I can be no other. I'm just being true. I'm just being authentic. And if God won't let me into heaven, I'd rather be in hell as far away from his God anyway. So that is what the modernity type thinker is thinking. God is judgmental. He's intolerant. I'm just me. I'm being true to myself. I can be no other. God should be more tolerant. He should let everyone in. He should be more inclusive. He should be more open-minded. So that's number one. Hell is judgmental. It's intolerant. Number two, hell is too harsh. I remember being in Sydney just amazed how ugly our architecture is. Uh, The rest of the world is beautiful because of what they did to it. Sydney is beautiful in spite of what we did to it. Uh, And then I said that to a planner, an architect, He says, Well, you know what's interesting is look at this building in Sydney. This is significant. It was built in the late 1800s. It's the first building they built in Sydney knowing they were going to stay for good. For 100 years, it was always a temporary settlement. We weren't meant to stay because it was a prison. It was a convict colony. We were set up as a prison. And so that's amazing. And even what's more amazing is what they sent people to Australia for very, very small crimes. Uh, People with families starving, they steal a loaf of bread put in jail, sent to Australia for the rest of their lives to die because they try to feed their family. And we think, boy, that is so harsh. That's disproportionate. It's an overreaction. Well, that's what hell sounds like. It's too harsh, isn't it? I get it. Pol Pot, Stalin, the Bali bombers. I get why they should be in hell. But my grandmother, my best friend, just because they wouldn't worship Jesus, because they didn't know Jesus, they go to hell for that. Parable of the wedding banquet. Uh, God puts on a wedding party. People make excuses, sorry, can't make it, just got married, bought a field. bought a cow. Okay, they miss. They go to hell. They go to hell for that. You think, whoa, if I put on a birthday party, invited you guys, and you guys made polite excuses, would I put you in prison for that? Would I beat you on the head with a stick for that? That would be a bit of an overreaction. That would show a bit of an insecurity on my part, wouldn't it? Like, who is this guy that puts me on hell just because they didn't, want to come to his party. Well, when, my, when my kids grow up, they'll have to make adult choices where they want me as their father. They can disown me. They can change their last name. They have the freedom to do that. And let's say they exercise that freedom. I'll be a little bit hurt, but they don't go to jail for that. That is their free choice. People are using their free choice. God, I'd rather not have you as my God. I don't want you as my Father. I don't want to worship you. God puts people in hell for a free choice. That's a bit excessive. It's an overreaction. It's disproportionate. It's too harsh. That's the second presupposition uh, that our friends have. And that's why they find hell hard to believe. The third one is, let's face it, hell is unloving. How can a loving God send people to hell? My wife and I have been married for 18 years. When we were dating, we were amazed at how similar we were. We like the same foods. We like the same movies. We get married and we are blown away by how different we are. We have very different time management styles. If you tell me I need to be here at 1 o'clock, I'll be here 30 minutes early. Otherwise, I freak out. She will always be 30 minutes late. We are... One hour out of sync. We spend the whole day one hour out of sync. When I'm ready to jump in the car and leave, she's ready to go in the shower to get ready. I think we are one hour out of sync. We have different shopping styles. If I were to buy milk, I go in and buy the milk, I pay, I'm out. She, it's an event, it's a journey. The milk is just the beginning of the event. It's a very different shopping style. We have different. Toilet roll management. I was always brought up that to the toilet roll had to go like this. She was brought up had to be like that. We are so different. So how can we be happily married for 18 years? Because we love each other. We're unconditionally loving. We love the other person just for who they are, and we forgive, we don't bear grudges. So why can't God just forgive us, accept us for who we are, love us unconditionally, not bear grudges? Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. What sort of God bears grudges? Hell seems like the ultimate grudge bearing, doesn't it? Just forgive them already. Eternal conscious punishment in hell. Forgive them. Love them unconditionally. You tell us to forgive. Why can't God forgive? So they're at least the three presuppositions why our friends find hell hard to believe. So hopefully what you're seeing here is before we can explain away hell, our non-Christian friends have to heard us describe their presuppositions back to them. So we've understood their presuppositions, describe, understand and empathise with them, feel the feeling behind their presuppositions, presuppositions. feel the emotion, uh, until then they're not ready to listen to us, so we have to show them, we've listened to their objection properly before they listen to our objection, we've described their presuppositions, understood them and the third one's a critical one feel what they're feeling, the emotions behind the presuppositions. So that was the exercise I just did. So any non-Christian listening to us right now said, yep, yeah, you've got me. They're nodding in head. That is what I'm feeling. You've got me. Now, how can we dismantle the presuppositions? How can we take them on one by one? I'm stealing this point. The point is God is more inclusive than what you and I would be. God is more inclusive than what you and I would be. I got this point from Aaron Ko. Aaron Ko, who was a youth, was a youth worker at my church, missionary in Taiwan. He says he's sold it from Tim Keller, but I'm just acknowledging my sources. That's, that's the name of the game, acknowledge your sources. God is more inclusive than what you and I would be. So what I like to tell my non-Christian friends is say, hey, let's say I got to be God, I got to run the universe. If I were God, I would have no hell everyone would get into heaven. Then you would say to me, really, you'll let everyone in heaven? Pol Pot, Stalin, the Bali bombers? And I'd say, okay, you got me. Not Pol Pot, not Stalin, not the Bali bombers. They don't get to go to heaven. I guess if I had to have a hell, they would be in hell then. And then you say, well, based on what? Based on what criteria? Okay, because they were bad people. Then you would say to me, oh, can you see what you've done? You've become exclusive. You've excluded people. You've drawn a line between good and bad. You've introduced fear and insecurity now because now how good do I have to be to get into heaven? Whew, okay, well, let's not make it based on whether you're good or bad. How about we make it as long as you're a sincere believer? It doesn't matter what God you worshipped or believed in, as long as you're sincere and faithful about it. And you say, oh, you've done it again. You've become exclusive. Can you see why you've done? You've drawn a line between sincere and non-sincere believers. Now you introduce fear and insecurity. How hard do I have to believe in my God before I get into your heaven? Oh, okay. Well, let's not make about being good or bad, believing or not believing. How about we make it in? Then you were just true to yourself. You kept it real. You're authentic, and you say to me, "You're done again. You're exclusive. You're a very exclusive, God. You've drawn a line between uh, keeping it real and not keeping it real. Authentic, not authentic. Fear, insecurity. How authentic? How real do I have to be to get into your heaven? <laughs> no matter what we do, if we were God, if we ran the universe, we too would be exclusive, and. It's very hard to know how much we have to do, how good, how sincere, how authentic we have to be to get in heaven. God says He's more inclusive than what you and I would be. God lets more people in heaven than what we could let in heaven. Because his line, his criteria isn't how good you were, how sincere you were, how real you were. It's just, did you know Jesus? Did you know, love, and worship Jesus? And based on that criterion, more people get in heaven than what you and I could learn in heaven. And that's a scandal, that's the hook, that's a reversal in the parable of the wedding banquet. Not that just people made soft excuses and missed out, but after that, God opens the gates of the banquet and says, you know what? I'm going to bring as many people in as I can, people that you would not invite to a wedding, people with disabilities, people who are hurt, people who are sick, people from the dark alleyways, sketchy people, dodgy people. I'm going to bring them to my wedding banquet, people you would not invite to your wedding banquet, I will open the doors to. That's a scandal that based on God's criteria, more people will get in heaven than what we could let into heaven if we ran the universe so number one God is actually more inclusive than what you and I would be because his criteria is simply hey you just got to know Jesus just love Jesus and you will get in God is more inclusive number two God is more just he's more fair he's more right so you can pick any of those three he's more just he's more fair he's more right than what you and I would be Because we have a very narrow view of fairness, we have a very very narrow view of justice, we have a very narrow view of what's right. So philosophers and legal people talk about three components to justice. There's reformative, there's distributive, there's retributive justice. So reformative justice, when I put my kids in the naughty corner, that's reformative justice. They should come out a better person. They have learnt their lesson. Reformative justice. Our jails are called the Department of Corrective Services. That's reformative justice. We put people in jail so that they come out a better person. They've learnt their lesson. Distributive justice. You give people what's owing to them. Give them what they have rights to. So this this is health. This is education. This is welfare. This is immigration policy. Give people their rights, what they have rights to. So when, when the widow knocks on the judge's house in Jesus' story and says, grant me justice, she's crying out for distributive justice. As a widow, I have rights to, to food and health and education. Give me justice, distributive justice. Retributive justice. Where people are punished for having done something wrong. And capital punishment is the ultimate example of retributive justice. Capital punishment is not reformative justice. Uh, It's too late to learn a lesson. You're dead. So it's retributive justice. You're being punished because you did something wrong. Now, we in the West don't have capital punishment except for the USA because we in the West have reformative, distributive, but not retributive. That gives us a narrower understanding of fairness and justice than what the rest of the world has And people like Miroslav Volf, I'm quoting him from Tim Keller. So he's a theologian from Eastern Europe. He says that's because we in the West have not suffered hideous evils and awful crimes. We have not had injustice done to us like the rest of the world. We haven't had warlords come into our village, rape our women, uh, kill our family, kidnap our children, force them into child slavery and becoming child soldiers. So if you've had awful injustice done upon you, you cry out for retributive justice. Uh, see, we in the West, sipping our lattes and Chardonnays, hiding behind our white picket fences, is all very nice for us to say, hey, we just need these two, because we haven't had hideous injustice done upon us. And Miroslav Volf goes further, he says, you know, if there was no hell, if there was no hell... We would have to do this ourselves. We would have to take life for life, blood for blood. But because there is a hell, and we know one day in the future, God will look after retributive justice. In this lifetime, we can love our enemies and forgive those who do wrong to us. So because there is a hell, this gives us a possibility of loving and forgiving our enemies, knowing that it's God who will look after the retributive justice, not us. But if there was no hell, we would have to take this into our own hands. So, by having a hell, God is actually more fair than what you and I would be. And number three, by having a hell, God is actually more loving, more loving than what you and I would be. We have three boys Toby Cooper Johnty, 864. And every now and then we go to a parenting seminar, we pay money for a parenting seminar and if you want to know with the existential cry of every Aussie out there, go to a parenting seminar. Because it will be filled. People have paid big money to be in that seminar. Because every Australian parent, we have lost control of our children. We cannot control our children. And we all know we just have to go to a playground, a shopping centre, or be on a plane with a kid. And we know no Australian out there right now can control their children. And in these parenting seminars, a common theme is this. We in Australia, we have confused love with never saying no to our children. We think to love our children, we have to become their best friend and give them everything they ask for. But these parenting seminars point out, no, 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 no. To be more loving, you need to be their parent, not their friend. And you need to say no when you need to say no. Children thrive on clear boundaries where there is a yes, there is a no, there is a right, and there really is a wrong. A wrong really is a wrong. Children thrive on boundaries and knowing what is right, what is wrong. And God is loving, and hell is the ultimate no answer. Hell is the ultimate boundary. So God is actually more loving by having a hell. Imagine God where there were no boundaries, where there was no right or wrong and no yes or no, but with hell there is a no, there is a boundary, and a wrong really is a wrong. But more than that, let's take it one step further. Typically two are saying, hey, if God is loving, dot, 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 dot. So if God is so loving, how can he send people to hell? is one example. Other examples, you know, God is so loving, why, why is there suffering? And you can think of other things that fill in this blank. So what's interesting, in modernity, the question was, how do you know God exists? There was a modernity type question and I remember being on university campuses in the 80s and that was the question people were asking. But in post-modernity, 21st century Australia, people aren't asking that question, how do you know God exists? They're asking this question, if God is so loving, why? Why can there only be one way? Why is there a hell? Why is there suffering? So one useful thing is this is the premise they're beginning with. This is what they're saying must be true and therefore you must be wrong because if this is true, your Christian God must be wrong because a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. A loving God will allow all ways to God, not just one way. So they're saying this is true, so I won't grant you what you believe to be true. So you begin with their premise and you give it a bit of a shake. So what you can do is say, hey, okay, yep, God is loving, but how do we know God is loving? But how do we know God is loving? Because I'm not sure how many major world religions believe God is loving. I know in Eastern religions, God is not loving. God is actually very vindictive, capricious. He's actually working against you. Asians live in fear of their gods. That's why they're so superstitious. Because their gods are against them. It's almost like the gods see you as an enemy. So in Asian religions, God is not loving. In Islam, God is more a distant, impersonal, powerful force. He's certainly not personal, warm, fuzzy, and loving in Islam. So where do we get this idea that God must be loving? There's actually only one major world religion where God is personal and loving. It's the Judeo-Christian God. But if we want God to be loving, then we need the Bible to be true. Because it's only in the Bible that we know God is loving. So, if we want God to be loving, we need the Bible to be true. But if we need the Bible to be true, we need the whole Bible to be true. We can't just pick and choose the bits from the Bible we like. Oh, I love this bit here about God being loving. Uh, the bit on hell. Ah, oh, I don't like that bit. No, 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 no. If we want God to be loving, the whole Bible needs to be true. The bits about God loving us and also the bits about hell. The whole Bible needs to be true if God is to be loving. Otherwise, we're just picking and choosing the bits we like. So that's one way we can go. Another way we can go is, how do we know God is loving? What is the ultimate demonstration that God loves us? What is the demonstration? The demonstration is Jesus dying for us on a cross. Okay, but if Jesus dying for me on a cross is the demonstration that God loves me, how is Jesus dying on a cross a loving thing? Because if I want to say, I love you, I give you chocolates, flowers, or a card, and then if I took the next step and hey, I want to show you how much I love you, I'm going to die for you, you would go, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. Chocolates, flowers, and a card, that's enough. You dying for me, uh, unnecessary overreaction, and actually, frankly, a little bit creepy. All right? Now you're weeding me out. Bit too creepy. I'm happy with a card, happy with the flowers, happy with the chocolate. You don't have to kill yourself. So when Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to die on a cross, we at that stage say, like, Jesus, 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 chocolates, cards, and a flower, enough. You dying for me, I think you've crossed the line. Bit weird, bit excessive, unnecessary, and frankly, weeding me out. Jesus, just stick right there. But if Jesus dies on the cross as a loving act, it's only a loving act because he's saving us from hell. He's dying in our place, so we don't have to go to hell. So if there was no hell, there's no reason for Jesus dying on a cross. So it's only a loving act because there is a hell. So if we want God to be loving, we want the if we want Jesus dying on a cross to be a loving thing, there actually needs to be a hell for this to work. So what I sometimes like to do with... A lot of defeated beliefs, so hell and other defeated beliefs, is sometimes I like to culturally relativise the opposition. Culturally relativise the defeated belief. By basically saying, oh yeah, I hear you, but right now you have a very Western objection. And the last thing a Westerner wants to be called is Western. Because that sounds really imperialistic, colonialistic and... Ignorant, so you culturally relativise the opposition. So what I sometimes like to do would be, you know, every culture, every time, every place finds it's one thing find it finds really hard to believe about Jesus. In the first century, do you know what they found hard to believe about Jesus in the first century? They found it really easy to believe that he was God. They found it hard to believe he was human. So they had all these debates about how human was Jesus really. Did he ever do a poo? Because the thought of the second person of the Trinity having to squat down, do a drop, and do a poo just freaked them out. So they had all these arguments. Well, he, he could eat, but he'd never had to poo. And if he had to poo, he was sterile. Uh, and we look at that and we laugh. Don't We even laugh, oh, come on, get over. It's just a poo. I'm okay with Jesus doing a poo. We laugh at that. In the 18th century... <laughs> Do you know what they had a problem with? They had no problem with him being man. They had the problem with him being God. So they freaked out over the virgin birth, rising from the dead, miracle stuff. And we look back at that in the 21st century and we laugh, oh, come on. If the Bible writers think he rose from the dead, more power to them. They have their truth. You have your truth. Who cares if there was a virgin birth or whether he rose from the dead or the miracles? I mean, that's, that's what they're seeing. That's what they're writing. So do you know what we have a problem with? in the 21st century with Jesus, not that he was God, not that he was human, we have a problem that Jesus sends people to hell. That's the bit we can't get over. But that's a 21st century recent Western objection. That means 300 years from now, let's say in the 24th century, we're going to have a different thing we freak out about Jesus. But we're going to look back in the 21st century and say, can you believe they had a problem with Jesus sending people to hell? Because the people in Africa don't have that problem. The people in Asia don't have that problem. The people in South America don't have a problem. It was a uniquely 21st century Western problem. And could you imagine one day us missing out on knowing worshipping Jesus in heaven because we had a problem with Jesus that was only a 21st century problem that we're not going to have 300 years later. And In fact, we're going to look back and laugh and say, Oh, I can't believe they had that problem in the 21st century. All right, so that's, that's another way you can tackle the hell thing. What I like to do is play around with this idea. Imagine you leave here now, you hit George Street and Pitt Street, and the ABC have found out that Geneva Push, Christian conservative Christian organisation, had just had a seminar on hell. Oh, that just lights it up. This is the perfect... Time to trap you. So these cameras just come in your face. You're not ready for it. This microphone appears in your mouth, and they're going to say, "Tell me, did you guys really talk about hell existing?" And you go, "Ah, ah, ah, ah." You got 15 seconds for a sound bite. What do you do? What do you say? Easy. Everything is the rule of threes. All right. So when you write a birthday card, have you noticed it's the rule of threes in a birthday card? What is number one? Happy birthday. Number two. Ah, oh, this is what you said. What am I going to say? Because this is the bit that's meant to be a little bit more personalized and meaningful. <sighs> okay, yeah, I really enjoyed hanging out with you the other week. Number three, have a good one. That's an easy one. So, But it's rule of threes. You've got to have three things you say in the birthday card. Same thing. Microphone is in your face. You've got to find three things to say. Number one, it's resonate. Number two, dissonate. Number three, gospel. Resonate, number one. That's where you state their question, you state their objection better than they could have. Better, a harder question than one they threw at you. And they go, wow, yeah, that is the question I want to know the answer to. I thought my question was good, but your one is a lot better than the one I gave you. I want to know that one. So you've resonated with them. Okay, go, yep, that's my question. You haven't misunderstood. You haven't uh, misrepresented. That is the question. Now you deconstruct their presuppositions. This is what I've been doing the last 20 minutes. Deconstruct the presuppositions and show them they actually need the gospel to be true. In their worldview, you've just taken something out that they thought was true. Now there's a hole, there's a vacuum you're going to plug the gospel into. So, example. And I'll read this out. It's being recorded. And afterwards, I'm going to put this page here and you can get your cameras out and take a photo of it. It saves you trying to write it. So, ABC says... Did you just have a old seminar on hell? Number one, yes, hell sounds so wrong, doesn't it? How can a good, loving God send people to hell for something that they just believe? They were just being themselves. Who is God to just judge us for who we are anyway? They go, yep, that's the question. Number two, dissonate. But we all want to believe that God is loving. But where do we get this idea from? It comes from the Bible. So if we want to believe the bits where the Bible says God is loving, we also have to believe the other bits that the Bible says about God. And the Bible says that God's most powerful demonstration of love to us is this. Jesus died on a cross for us in our place. And this only makes sense if he's saving us from hell. Number three. So whatever God's reason for having hell is, it must be so powerful that his own son had to die on a cross for me, not to take away hell, but to save us from it. Alright, so that's an example soundbite. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet, I'm not saying it's a great way, I'm not saying it's the best way, but it's a way, um, but it's a useful way of thinking of, of how to work through a soundbite.